You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's May 1780. A man stands on the deck of the Aurora, an American naval ship sailing through the Delaware Bay headed for the West Indies. For two years, he served as a private in the Monmouth, New Jersey militia. He's a poet and writer by trade, but the war with the British is in full swing. Every man of the colonies has a part to play, even a bookish scribe like him. As he stares out over the water, he sees something on the horizon. The ship's lookout sees it too. He calls out from atop the highest mast. Ship on the horizon, easterly. In the distance, the poet sees the sails of a British warship getting taller and taller, gaining speed. The ship's captain leaps into action. On the double lads, we'll outrun them and make land at Cape Henlopen. But before anyone on the boat has a chance to react, Incoming! It's a direct hit. The captain holds fast and tries to rally his frightened sailors. Return fire! Return fire! But the Aurora is outgunned, equipped with only a handful of six-pound cannons, no match for the 12-pounders blazing away from the British warship. Take cover, men! But there's no place to run. Water pours through Aurora's wounds, filling the ship. The cannon fire rocks the boat and knocks the poet to the ground. There's a numb ringing in his ears. He hears the cries of his shipmates. He sees flaming planks of wood fly into the sea as volley after volley rips into the facade of his ship. Then he sees the captain lying in a pool of his own blood. But then the cannon fire stops. The poet climbs to his feet and peers out over the bay. In the distance, several dozen armed British troops climb from the ship onto a small transport vessel. When the British Navy men board the Aurora, the young poet doesn't put up a fight. He's ashamed to even think of it, but he almost envies the captain. Death seems kinder than the fate that awaits him. Famine, shackles, and despair. The fate of a British prisoner of war. He falls to his knees, hands on his head, and surrenders. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying. That's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost. And recently, they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. 
By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham. And this is American Elections Wicked Game. The young poet on that ship was an American named Philip Freneau. He wrote two accounts of his capture, a poem titled The British Prison Ship and a prose manuscript published many years after the fact. According to Freneau, after the British warship attacked the Aurora in May of 1780, he was taken prisoner and held on board the Scorpion, a British prison ship docked in New York City. After a failed escape attempt and an almost deadly illness, Freneau was eventually released. As a young man, Freneau attended Princeton University and joined a political organization called the American Whig Society. As fortune would have it, his roommate was another politically-minded man, a young Virginian named James Madison. In college, these two intellectuals developed a close friendship that lasted well beyond the Revolutionary War. Freneau wrote anti-British satires and published two volumes of poems earning the title Poet of the Revolution. But Mr. Freneau's service in the military is disputed. Some historians claim Freneau was never on the Aurora. Others claim he was on the ship, but not as a soldier. He was heading to the West Indies to strike it rich. It's not disputed that the Aurora was captured, but some historians believe Freneau likely exaggerated his role. Either way, it wasn't the last time Freneau used his talents as a writer to traffic in half-truths. After the war, his writing turned from the patriotic and the poetic to the partisan. Because in the 1790s, Philip Freneau again wielded his pen, this time to create one of the nation's first partisan newspapers, the National Gazette, a political mouthpiece for a pro-states rights political faction led by his college friend James Madison and another Virginian named Thomas Jefferson. Freneau's words had a massive impact on the political discourse of the nation and on the tone of the upcoming election. This is episode two, 1792, Partisanship Rising. It's June 19th, 1790. 
Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton frantically paces up and down the corridor outside President Washington's office in New York, New York. For now, the capital of the United States, though many are hoping the location will move south. Hamilton is stressed. He's banked his entire career on a bold financial plan to consolidate debt and boost U.S. credit. But opposition to the plan is fierce, especially in the South, where state debts have already largely been paid. For the South, then, a national debt means paying off the debt of other states. Just then, the man Hamilton's been waiting for rounds the corner. Secretary Jefferson, may I speak with you for a moment? Of course, Mr. Hamilton, lead the way. As Hamilton walks Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson outside, Jefferson takes note of Hamilton's uncharacteristically haggard appearance. Normally dressed in the finest livery of the day, today Hamilton looks a mess. His dress is rumpled, his manner somber and dejected. Jefferson, as usual, looks typically stoic, dignified, tall and lean, with red hair and piercing hazel eyes. They stand on the busy street near the front entrance of the building, there, amidst the crowd of passers-by, Hamilton launches into a tirade about one of his favorite subjects. The assumption of state debts, Mr. Jefferson. It is indispensable to the preservation of the Union. Jefferson doesn't agree, but he's always careful with his words. So he doesn't interject. He lets Hamilton do the talking. If I have not the credit to carry this measure, I will be no use to this country. I'll be forced to resign. Yours is the business of the state, sir. Mine, the Treasury. But we must make common cause in supporting one another. If you might interest your friends in the South, those who most oppose this measure, it would greatly further that purpose. Jefferson gives a calculated response. Oh, I have been so long absent from my country that I've lost familiarity with its affairs. It's a lie, and Hamilton knows it. It is true that Jefferson recently returned from a post in France, but losing familiarity with his country's affairs is a stretch. The fiscal system being out of my department, I have not yet undertaken to consider and understand it. Another lie. But Hamilton entertains it and holds his tongue. But I will resolve what you have urged in my mind, and I will write to you presently. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. As Jefferson and Hamilton part ways, Hamilton knows Jefferson's feigned ignorance is a ploy. But Hamilton is desperate. He needs all the help he can get, even if it means cozying up to the leader of the opposition and striking a Faustian bargain. Later that day, Jefferson made good on his promise. Hamilton received a letter inviting him to dinner the following night at Jefferson's residence at 57 Maiden Lane near the Financial District in Manhattan. Hamilton attended, along with Jefferson and a handful of others, most notably Virginia Congressman James Madison. An intense debate ensued, but by the time the meal was over, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison had struck a deal. The South would agree to support Hamilton's financial plan. Hamilton would agree to support moving the U.S. capital from New York to a stretch of land near the Potomac in Maryland that would later become known as Washington, District of Columbia. The precise details of what was discussed that night at Jefferson's apartment are lost to history. But this much is certain. Three men walked into a room, and when they walked out, they had achieved one of the greatest political compromises in the history of the United States. The Compromise of 1790, as it would come to be called, was one of the earliest examples of vote trading in American history. The debate over the location of the Capitol and the assumption of state debts had been raging for months, and Congress was gridlocked. 
But in a single dinner conversation, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison put an end to the debate. During President Washington's first term, the country was bitterly divided. The Constitution had been ratified, but not without strong opposition. And in the wake of its adoption, two political factions had emerged. Federalists, men like Alexander Hamilton, who advocated for a strong, centralized government with a strong executive branch, and anti-federalists, who believed in the sovereignty of the states above all, that a strong executive branch was a recipe for monarchy and tyranny. The reaction to the Compromise of 1790, the rare moment of unity between Hamilton and Jefferson, was not altogether positive. In the eyes of many New Yorkers, Hamilton had betrayed his own state. To the state's rights advocates, Jefferson had slighted the South and given the North too much power. The result was that both sides dug in even deeper. Jefferson would later write that Hamilton's victory of the issue of state debts led to the formation of the nation's first two political parties, the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans, or as they call themselves in short, Republicans. In fact, one of the earliest uses of the term Republican appeared in an anti-Federalist newspaper. The editor of that paper was a man named Philip Freneau. By the time Hamilton's financial plan passed on November 25, 1791, Thomas Jefferson was deeply frustrated over the growing Federalist influence in national politics. He was frustrated by something else, too. Alexander Hamilton had been raking him over the coals in the press. The Gazette of the United States, edited by a man named John Fenno, was a champion of all things Federalist. Hamilton had urged Fenno to start the paper back in 1789, and even later used his personal money to save the paper from financial ruin. The Gazette of the United States was blatantly pro-administration, and in Jefferson's mind, it was nothing more than a bullhorn for Hamilton's policies. Jefferson called the Gazette a paper of pure Toryism, disseminating the doctrine of monarchy, aristocracy, and the exclusion of the influence of the people. So three days after Hamilton's debt plan passed, on November 28, 1791, Jefferson wrote a letter to a friend of a friend, the renowned writer Philip Freneau, college roommate of Jefferson's political ally James Madison. In the letter, Jefferson offered Freneau a position at the State Department, a translator job with an annual salary of $250. The job was, of course, a front for Jefferson's true agenda. He wanted a bullhorn of his own. Jefferson and Madison convinced Freneau to move to Philadelphia and start a new national newspaper that would hold the administration accountable. On Halloween of 1791, Freneau's National Gazette launched its first publication. Jefferson encouraged his allies to use the paper as a weapon. He wrote to James Madison about Hamilton. For God's sake, my dear sir, take up your pen, select the most striking heresies, and cut him to pieces in the face of the public. Partisan newspapers flourished in the 1790s. Facts and objective reporting were abandoned in favor of partisan attacks and scandalous insinuations. Jefferson himself saw the papers for what they truly were. He wrote, Nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. But that didn't stop Jefferson or Hamilton from making use of that vehicle. In a series of dueling essays, the National Gazette attacked Hamilton and the Federalists. The Gazette of the United States fought back, attacking Jefferson and the Republicans. The press war between the two factions was growing heated. The battles in the press of the 1790s were reflective of the growing strife in the country. 
Washington's first term was beset with civilian unrest. Protests, riots, and insurrections were commonplace. Alexander Hamilton's whiskey tax of 1791, a federally imposed syntax on liquor, had led to angry protests and ultimately violence. The American Revolution had been fought over the issue of taxes, and in the wake of the war, the American government's attempt to collect taxes of their own to pay down its war debts threatened to incite its own people into rebellion. So as he neared the end of his first term, President Washington was exhausted. He'd spent months out on the road, traveling the country, trying desperately to unite the people. He was weary from the travel, and even more weary of partisan infighting in his own administration. In February of 1792, Washington met with James Madison in the executive mansion in Philadelphia, the temporary U.S. capital before it moved to the Potomac. In the meeting, Washington told Madison he was ready to step aside and go home to Virginia. Madison was floored. The Constitution said nothing about term limits for presidents. If Washington wanted a second term or a third or a fourth, he was well within his rights. There are no records of what was discussed in their meeting on February 19th, but it's clear from his future writings that Madison implored Washington to reconsider his retirement. But Washington wasn't convinced. On May 20th, he wrote to Madison asking him to turn your thoughts to a valedictory address, expressing his intention to resign. Less than a month later, despite his reservations, Madison sent back his first draft of the farewell letter. But if Hamilton and Jefferson were at odds in the press, there was certainly one subject they agreed on. Jefferson wrote to Washington, The confidence of the whole Union is centered in you. Your being at the helm will be more than an answer to every argument. North and South will hang together if they have you to hang on. And Hamilton wrote, The impression is uniform that your declining would be deplored as the greatest evil that could befall the country at the present juncture. Others had similar sentiments. Attorney General Edmund Randolph wrote to Washington, You alone can give them stability. Should a civil war arise, you cannot stay at home. And Washington knew that a civil war was a distinct possibility. But in the final year of his presidency, it was the war inside his cabinet that was his most pressing concern. Near the end of his first term, Washington made a startling discovery. Philip Freneau, the editor of the highly partisan National Gazette, was also working for Jefferson's State Department. By then, the attacks in the press had reached a fever pitch, so Washington confronted Hamilton and Jefferson about their role in the publishing of these anonymous essays. Hamilton confessed. He admitted to writing multiple essays under various pseudonyms. But Jefferson stonewalled. He denied having advanced knowledge that Freneau was planning to start a newspaper. He also denied trying to influence the paper's content, saying that he would protest the accusation even in the face of heaven. Washington was concerned. In the summer of 1792, he warned both men against the dangers of politics becoming personal. To Jefferson, he wrote, How unfortunate that whilst we are encompassed on all sides with avowed enemies and insidious friends, that internal dissension should be harrowing. My earnest wish is that instead of wounding suspicions and irritable charges, there may be liberal allowances, mutual forbearances, and temporizing yieldings on all sides. And to Hamilton he wrote, Differences in political opinions are as unavoidable as, to a certain point, they may perhaps be necessary. But it is to be regretted exceedingly that subjects will not exercise more charity in deciding on the opinions and actions of one another. But as Washington fought to heal the divisions in his own cabinet, Privately, he was having an internal struggle of his own. He still desperately wanted to retire. 
He saw the many challenges facing the young nation, partisanship, economic anxiety, the threat of civil war. He also knew that he was one of the few men, perhaps the only man, who could keep the country together. He wrestled with the decision until as late as October, just a few weeks away from the start of the election process. In the end, just as he had done in the 1789 contest, Washington set aside his personal desires and agreed to stand for re-election. There was little doubt Washington would win re-election. In the contest of 1792, the real question was over the vice presidency. John Adams would have to fight to keep his office, and he would find help from an unlikely ally, the very man who had conspired to deny him electoral votes in the election of 1789, Alexander Hamilton. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West. From famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. It's fall 1792 in a small tavern near Hartford, Connecticut. A short, paunchy man sits at the bar, sipping a warm drink and enjoying his dinner, trying his best to fight off the cold. The frigid weather outside is punishing, and the roads in and out of town are blocked with mounds of snow. Just down the bar, a well-dressed gentleman converses with a bartender. Uh, well, the question for me is not George Washington. It's John Adams. The paunchy man puts down his knife and fork grabs his drink and slides next to the well-dressed gentleman. Well, pardon the interruption, sir, but would you tell me what do you make of Mr. Adams? He's a great friend to the country. Of that, there is no doubt. Yet, you question him. Yes, I do. He's spoken in favor of hereditary descent and done his fellow citizens in Massachusetts a great disservice. He's been too long in Europe and got tainted. The paunchy man laughs. <laughs> it's hard if a man cannot go to Europe without being tainted. <laughs> Hard or not, the fact remains, he was. Well, if Mr. Adams went to Europe on the people's business, but got tainted doing it, I believe the people then ought to pay him for the damage. The well-dressed man returns the laugh and gives his paunchy new friend a hearty slap on the back. Oh, let me buy you a drink, friend. 
No, please, allow me. The poncho man waves a bartender over. I'd like to pay for this fellow's drink. Please charge it to my account. Of course, Mr. Adams. Right away. After his conversation with the stranger, Vice President John Adams finished his drink, retired to his room, and wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail. The note began, My dearest friend. He told her the story of his witty quip with a respectable man in a tavern, and he told her something else, too. I am told that a unanimous vote will be for me in Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. This is generally expected, but I know full well the uncertainty of such things. Adams was clearly concerned about his prospects for re-election, and he was right to be. In the fall of 1792, with the election just around the corner, Governor George Clinton of New York was about to give John Adams a run for his money. From the beginning, Alexander Hamilton saw a defect in the electoral system devised by the founders. The Constitution system did not provide for electors to vote separately for president and vice president, which meant that the man intended for vice president might accidentally win the presidency. In the election of 1789, Hamilton had conspired to deny Adams electoral votes in order to prevent just such an accidental presidency. In the election of 1792, Hamilton would again conspire, but this time to John Adams' benefit. Hamilton revered George Washington. He tolerated John Adams, writing, Mr. Adams, like other men, has his faults and his foibles. But in spite of their disagreements, Hamilton found Adams honest, firm, faithful, a sincere lover of his country, and a real friend to genuine liberty. And it was perhaps that admiration that made Hamilton determined to keep the Washington-Adams ticket intact. In order to do this, he would set his sights on two Republican politicians from the state of New York, Governor George Clinton and a newly elected senator named Aaron Burr. If Hamilton tolerated Adams, he had no stomach at all for Governor George Clinton. When rumors began to swirl that Governor Clinton might make a move for the vice presidency, Hamilton tried to alert Adams to the danger. In June of 1792, Hamilton wrote Adams a letter warning of a dangerous plot in New York to subvert the government by stealing the second highest office in the land. Adams had been spending a lot of time outside the Capitol, back home in Massachusetts. Hamilton worried his absence left Clinton an opening ripe for exploitation. Hamilton warned that Adams' stay in Massachusetts will give some handle to your enemies to misrepresent, and though I am persuaded you are very indifferent personally to the event of a certain election, yet I hope you are not so as it regards the cause of good government. But Adams didn't take Hamilton's warning seriously. He didn't rush back to Philadelphia to defend his vice presidency. He stayed in Massachusetts, fearing no competitor. As he told his wife Abigail, George Clinton was his inferior in almost every way. Then, not long after Hamilton warned Adams about Clinton, another challenger stepped onto the scene. The young New York Senator Aaron Burr was extremely popular in his home state, and he had been ginning up support for his candidacy for vice president. Hamilton was worried that Burr was a stalking horse. He had the requisite name recognition to steal enough votes away from Adams to hand the election to George Clinton. And Hamilton wasn't alone in his concern. New York's other senator, Rufus King, wrote to Hamilton, if the enemies of the government are secret and united, we shall lose Mr. Adams. Hamilton was determined to prevent that from happening. 
John Adams didn't have much respect for Burr, and he certainly didn't fear him. He had once called Burr fat as a duck and ruddy as a roostcock. But Hamilton knew better than to underestimate the man, and he certainly knew better than to trust him. In the 1790 election, Burr had run against Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuyler, and unseated him in the Senate. Burr had won the election by positioning himself as a man friendly to the Republican cause. Then, in the spring of 1792, the ambitious Burr had made a run at governor of New York, hoping to unseat Governor Clinton. He had set out to build a coalition of Federalists and anti-Clinton Republicans. Alarmed at his sudden friendliness with his own political faction, Hamilton blocked Burr's path and prevented him from making any significant headway. When Burr realized his plan to unite with the Federalists was dead on arrival, he did a complete about-face and loudly declared his support for Clinton. This made Burr in Hamilton's mind an opportunist. Shortly after the governor's race, Hamilton had written that Burr was unprincipled both as a public and private man. I take it he is for or against nothing but as it suits his interest or ambition. I feel it a religious duty to oppose his career. As he had done in the governor's race before, Hamilton fired off letters to block Burr's path to the vice presidency. In one letter in September of 1792, Hamilton wrote, If we have an embryo Caesar in the United States, tis Burr. Hamilton's anxieties about Burr, like his anxieties about Adams in the election of 1789, turned out to be much ado about nothing. On October 16, 1792, a group of Republican leaders met in Philadelphia. The Republicans knew that Washington was unbeatable, but unseating John Adams was a goal within their reach. This meeting in Philadelphia was perhaps the first example of political organization in American history. In the meeting, Republican leaders voted unanimously to make George Clinton their candidate for vice president. Burr would ultimately step aside, accepting the outcome and setting his sights on future elections. In the end, the concerted efforts by the Republicans to organize behind a unified vice presidential candidate would fail, but the vote would be close. The second presidential election ever was held from Friday, November 2nd to Wednesday, December 5th, 1792. When the votes were tallied, George Washington was re-elected unanimously, meaning he received at least one vote from each of the 132 electors from the 15 states. Adams carried the vice presidency with 77 votes, but George Clinton won 50. For Adams, it was too close for comfort, and for his pride, it was intolerable. When asked by a senator about his narrow victory, Adams allegedly gritted his teeth and cursed, Damn him, damn him, damn him. You see that an elective government will not do. In the election of 1792, George Washington's poise and prestige had again carried the day. But in the wake of his victory, Washington quickly became a target of the Republican press. In the National Gazette, Philip Freneau lambasted Washington's presidential style as being elitist. A certain monarchical prettiness must be highly extolled, such as levees, drawing rooms, stately nods instead of shaking hands, titles of office, seclusion from the people. And so the war between the Federalists and the Republicans waged on. And in the wake of Washington's re-election, Thomas Jefferson would take that conflict to a whole new level. In early 1793, President Washington was deeply distraught over the infighting in his cabinet. He admonished Jefferson and Hamilton to keep the peace, 
Jefferson assured the president that he would strive for unity, but Jefferson had no intention of standing down. With the help of his old friend James Madison, Jefferson set a plan in motion to drive Hamilton from office by force. It would be the first time in American history a cabinet member would be investigated for misconduct. Jefferson and Madison enlisted the help of a Virginian congressman named William Branch Giles to go after Hamilton over his supposedly improper use of government funds. On January 23, 1793, Giles, at the urging of Jefferson, submitted five resolutions written by Madison to the House of Representatives. These resolutions required Hamilton to provide meticulously detailed government balance sheets. It was a monumental task made all the more difficult by an impossible deadline, March 3rd, a little over a month away. If Hamilton failed to meet the deadline, his enemies in Congress would see it as evidence of his guilt. Jefferson and Madison tried to disguise their efforts, but Hamilton knew who was behind the scheme. He called Madison the prompter of Mr. Giles, who was the open instrument of his opposition. Hamilton, eager to prove the charges false, not only met the deadline, but turned in the records two weeks early. He would write, It is certain that I have made every exertion in my power, at the hazard of my health, to comply with the requisitions of the House as early as possible. But Jefferson didn't back down. On February 25th, he proposed to Washington an official inquiry into Hamilton and the Treasury Department. Washington dismissed Jefferson's demand outright, but Jefferson pressed on. He secretly wrote nine new resolutions and gave them to Giles, who submitted them as his own at the end of February, days before a congressional recess. If the resolutions passed, Hamilton would not have time to answer them before the recess. But luckily for Hamilton, on March 1st, Congress opted not to pass any of them. But during Washington's second term, the congressional inquiry wasn't the only fire Hamilton was trying to quell. As part of his grand financial plan, Hamilton had also pushed for the institution of a whiskey tax. When the flames of resistance to this levy began to blaze all across the country, Hamilton would turn to President Washington for help in putting them out. Icebergs, jagged rocks and rocky straits, mutinies, misfortune, and broadside battles. There are more tales of the sea than survivors to tell them. But the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is doing a good job, and you can listen to all episodes of that podcast plus many others, including American Elections Wicked Game, without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is one of my favorites from last year, a podcast about the greatest mishaps, misfortune, and misadventures of the sea. You'll hear stories of corruption, greed, bad intentions, and just plain horrible decision-making that resulted in some of the worst maritime disasters from all over the world. And some of these are more recent than you think. All episodes are ad-free, including bonus content and more, at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. How do you solve a crime in reverse? when you believe that someone was murdered, but have no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we gonna do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
It's July 16, 1794, just before sunrise. General John Neville tosses and turns in his plush bed inside his opulent home, the Bower Mansion, in Pittsburgh's Allegheny County. The former general-turned-tax collector can't sleep because he has a target on his back. The citizens of Allegheny County have not taken kindly to the federally mandated whiskey tax or Neville's efforts to enforce it. But there's one thought that gives him comfort. The federal troops President Washington sent to protect him. But just as he's about to drift off to sleep, there's a knock at his bedroom door. Oh, for God's sake, what is it? General Neville, sir, uh, we have a problem. May I, may I come in? Yes, yes. What is it? Just then, Neville hears it in the distance. When Neville pulls back the curtain of his bedroom window, his eyes swell with fear. Outside, 500 men are marching on Bower Hill, the Mingo Creek County Militia. What are your orders, sir? Tell the women to lie on the floor and order your men to take defensive positions. But there are only 10 of us, General. Then wake up my slaves and arm them as well. The militia stops close to the mansion, well within firing range. The leader of the militia, a man named Oliver Miller, steps forward. Come out, General Neville, and your life will be spared. I order you to leave this property at once. We will not, sir. General Neville's not the type of man to ask twice. He flings open the window, takes aim with his pistol, and fires on the militia. Oliver Miller drops to the ground, the life leaving his eyes. Neville, his slaves, and the Union soldiers unleash a hail of gunfire on the militia. By the skirmish's end, four more militiamen had fallen dead. Caught off guard, the rest of the militia panicked and fell into a retreat. But the militia would be back. The next day, 700 militiamen marched on Bower Hill. By that time, Neville had already fled, leaving the Federal troops behind to defend their position. The militia allowed the women to escape to safety, but after, they fired their rifles and muskets unceasingly for over an hour. They set fire to the property and the slave quarters, too. The Federal troops surrendered, and the Bower Hill mansion was burned to the ground. The whiskey tax had been Alexander Hamilton's brainchild from the beginning. Despite resistance from Republicans, Congress had passed the controversial measure in 1790. At first, citizens had merely refused to pay in protest. But by 1794, their protests had turned violent. Secretary Hamilton implored Washington to take military action. And after the battle at Bower Mansion, Washington had little choice. For the first and only time in American history, a sitting president took command of a military force and marched them against American citizens. Washington's militia, over 12,000 strong, put a swift end to the rebellion without bloodshed. By the time Washington and his troops reached Pittsburgh, the rebel militias had dispersed and abandoned their rebellion. Thanks to Washington, the new U.S. government had survived a major challenge to its federal authority. But inside the cabinet, the war was raging still. President Washington's patience for partisan bickering was all but gone. By the end of his second term, what would come to be called the first two-party system had fully taken root, and Washington was growing weary of the fight. The differences between the two factions were defined by class, race, region, and religion. The Federalists were mainly comprised of merchants, manufacturers, and businessmen. The Republicans attracted small farmers, urban workers, immigrants, and religious minorities. 
The Federalists dominated New England, Republicans dominated the South, and the Mid-Atlantic states were a mixture of both. Over the course of his presidency, Washington had traditionally sided with the Federalists, though he did not identify as a member of any political faction. He had supported Hamilton's financial plan and had frequently relied on his wisdom, much to the chagrin of the Republicans. Washington's continued support for Hamilton had caused his Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson to even resign in December of 1793. And foreign affairs, especially the ongoing conflict between France and Great Britain, had only intensified the divisions. The bloody turmoil of the French Revolution had caused the Federalists to pull away from France and throw their support behind Great Britain, New England's number one trading partner. Republicans saw this abandonment of the French democratic movement as further proof of the true Federalist agenda, monarchy. Republicans had supported the principles that prompted the French Revolution and preferred an alliance with France. Washington had for a long time advocated a policy of neutrality, but in the winter of 1794, his support of Jay's Treaty, a controversial trade and peace agreement with Great Britain, seemed to tip the scales. The blowback was severe, even in Washington's home state. In January of 1795, at a dinner for Virginia officials, one man rose to his feet and made a toast. A speedy death to General Washington! Washington was also raked over the coals in the Republican press with outright falsehoods. He was accused of taking bribes and being a British double agent. In spite of Republican pushback, if Washington had wanted it, he likely could have remained president for life. There was nothing stopping him. In fact, many expected him to do just that. But by the summer of 1796, Washington was done. In early May 1796, he wrote to a colleague that the troubles of the nation added to the weight of years which have passed upon me, have worn away my mind more than my body, and renders ease and retirement indispensably necessary to both during the short time I have to remain here. That same month, he sent Alexander Hamilton a draft of his farewell address, using portions of the earlier draft written by James Madison. Washington asked Hamilton to take a stab at the address, telling Hamilton that if he so desired, he could start from scratch and throw the whole into a different form. Later that summer, Hamilton delivered to Washington two options, a revised version of the Madison address and a new version that was entirely his own. Washington and Hamilton then sent drafts back and forth by mail. In the end, much of the language in the final farewell address was written by Hamilton, but it was all subject to Washington's precise edits. In that address, Washington touches on personal matters. He had not sought the presidency, nor had he desired a second term. He was getting older and wanted to retire to Mount Vernon. Washington talked about the Union being the bedrock of American liberty and the Constitution as the instrument of that unity. He talked at length about foreign policy, urging neutrality in foreign conflicts. He also turned his thoughts towards the subject of partisanship. Washington wrote that political parties serve to organize faction, to put in the place of the delegated will of the nation the will of the party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community. They are likely, in the course of time and things, to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. In September of 1796, in the last months of his last year as president, Washington decided to release his address to a single Philadelphia newspaper, the American Daily Advertiser. It was titled, 
the address of General Washington to the people of the United States on his declining of the presidency of the United States. Though Washington's address has largely been praised, both in its time and by future historians, the Republican reaction was not uniformly positive. One Republican paper called Washington's words the loathings of a sick mind. And if the Republicans knew Alexander Hamilton had been a co-author, the reaction likely would have been even more severe. But Hamilton kept his involvement a secret from most. His wife Eliza would later recall that a soldier tried to sell Hamilton a copy of the address on the streets of New York. With a hearty laugh, Hamilton would remark, That man does not know that he has asked me to purchase my own work. If the words of the address were Hamilton's, the principles were Washington's. In the final months of his presidency, he would make good on his word to rise above the partisan fray. During the election of 1796, Washington would not comment and would not get involved, publicly or otherwise. He would observe silently as the Constitution's electoral system experienced its first real contest. In the fall of 1796, James Madison would write to fellow Virginian James Monroe, It is now generally understood that the president will retire. Jefferson is the object on one side, Adams apparently on the other. So for the first time in American history, the presidency was up for grabs, and two political factions would fight it out for the reins of presidential power. For eight years, President Washington was the levy that held back a swelling torrent of partisanship. But with his retirement in the election of 1796, the rising floodwaters of partisan politics in America had nothing holding them back. This is Episode 2 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1792, Partisanship Rising. On the next episode, the election of 1796, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson collide in the first contested election in United States history. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her Half of History is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.